It's good to be back with you in the auditorium family. It seems like it's been a long time since I've had a chance to share the word with you, and I uh, count this a great privilege uh, to be, uh, be up here today. I thought maybe we would start this today with a picture. I want you to caption a picture that uh, I captured a few months ago. I didn't actually take it. A friend of mine did. And as you caption it, please be nice, because you may know a few people on this picture. Uh, I think the guy in the red there happens to be Nick Feinart's dad. So if you see Nick, uh, let him know you saw this picture today. But a little bit later, we're going to come back to this picture, and I'm going to ask if any of you had any captions for it, all right? So you'll be thinking about that. And um, with that, we'll go into God's Word in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, beginning reading with verse 21. And if you have been part of the text group in Mark, as I'm reading, I'd like for you to be thinking about maybe some comments that you have, or thoughts or questions that you may have had that, you may, that may have been shared in your text group. And we're just going to have a little bit of time of sharing here in a few moments, maybe uh, some insights that you've had from Mark chapter 5. Beginning with verse 21, we read this. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman, and Pastor Kevin described it in the, in the 8 o'clock service, if you can remember what it's like at Tulip Time around here trying to get to Yarsma Bakery. Uh, if you can picture that, that's kind of how it is. Um, verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you as disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And I might add here, the reason she was trembling for fear is she was way out of line. <laughs> she was ceremonially unclean for 12 years and every one that she touched became unclean as well. So when she pushed through the crowd to Jesus, she was breaking every rule in the book. And when Jesus said, who touched me, who wouldn't be scared? <laughs> she probably thought, well, here's this, re uh, this guy that's sent from heaven. <laughs> he might call down fire on me for what I've just done. So it says she came trembling with fear and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. 
He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took his, the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in, went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kuam, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Probably the best translation we have of that would be, honey, wake up. Honey, wake up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around her. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. May God add his blessing to the reading of the word this morning. So thoughts, those of you that have been in text groups or those of you who read this for the first time this morning, what comes to your mind in, this, in these stories today? Does anyone want to start us out? I know I'm taking a big chance on a Sunday morning. Brian? Yes, I had several people comment about that, Brian, this week, that the 12 years, uh, this woman's, uh, and it could be described this way, this woman had been experiencing emotional death for 12 years, while the other girl who was 12 years old, who was born at about the time that this woman's issue started, uh, received, was also dead physically. So that's a neat little correlation, details uh, in Jesus' stories, I love them. One of them was kind of a parenthetical thing, wasn't it? And by the way, she was 12 years old. <laughs> Anyone else? Any thoughts that came to mind? Yes, Lynn. I've always loved the story of the woman because one of the things I love is that Jesus could have just let her quietly get her healing and not said anything. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to make sure that she knew that he knew and that he loved her and that he did it on purpose and like made her stand up in front of everybody. Yes. Awesome. That recognition is that's, that's great, Lynn. For those of you that couldn't hear, that recognition that Jesus made it public and he looked her face to face. And in, in fact, he used the word daughter, which probably shocked her when she was expecting condemnation. And isn't that like when we come to Jesus, <laughs> when, we've been, when we've been out like the prodigal in the pig lot and we're coming home and we're expecting condemnation and instead we hear the word daughter. Welcome home, son. Neat. Thank you, Lynn. Anyone else? If you keep this up long enough, I won't have to preach. That's what the idea is behind this. Yes. But I did, and I think that's because we 
Thank you. That's a neat insight. For those of you that couldn't hear, just as Lynn had said that Jesus made it very public with a woman with the issue of blood, he did it very privately with Jairus' daughter. He sent everyone else out except for Peter, James, and John and uh, the parents. And then he said, don't tell anyone. One other thing that I've that I've been amazed at at the book of Mark is how different, well, of all the gospels for that matter, you never see a miracle happen the same way twice. And I think there's a purpose behind that, that it isn't a formula that we learn. It's a person that we connect with. Yes, Vicki. Mm. Restoring her dignity. I read somewhere uh, this week, I think it was in Timothy Keller's book, where, uh, where she was emotionally healed when Jesus addressed her. She was physically healed when she touched him, but she was emotionally healed when Jesus looked her in the fa- face-to-face and said, daughter, your faith has saved you. These are great. Anyone else? Yes, Emily. Thank you for sharing that, Emily. In fact, the, the rulers of the synagogue already had started conspiring against Jesus in a few, a few chapters before, a couple chapters before. So for him to come forward like this and say, in desperation, uh, this, this man knew there was something about Jesus he wanted. Preston. Yes, mine's pretty simple. Okay. Um, I, like, I, I just simply like the, when Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. Okay. There's a sermon in that, isn't there, Preston? Yep. All right, don't be afraid, just believe. Wendy? Wendy? That is fascinating. Goes right back to what you were saying. That is fascinating. That might be a whole nother study in itself, isn't it? Neat. Yes, Andy. It, that's, that's, do we have any medical f- folks in the house that could help us with that? <laughs> Maybe it's hard work to die and come back to life. I don't know. That's good. Even Jesus, after he came back to life uh, from the resurrection, he ate food in their presence. Interesting. That's another study. You guys are just starting all sorts of new things here. Yes. Right. 
Yes. I think I'm just going to take right off from there because you've, you've really led me into where I feel like the Holy Spirit has led me this week in the study. After 12 years of absolutely nothing, she had spent her whole life savings, hadn't had a hug for 12 years, hadn't touched anyone for 12 years, and she still had the faith to believe in this man, Jesus. So the, the subject that we're supposed to deal with today is the waiting the waiting. In her case, it was 12 years. In Jairus's case, he had to wait while Jesus got interrupted by someone else. And here was a guy whose daughter was at death's door. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? It'd be like you called 911 and the ambulance says, I'll be there, but I'm going to stop for a cup of coffee at Casey's first. Because comparing the two, one was chronic, one was urgent. And when, when Jesus stopped to address the woman and even took time to talk to her, this unclean woman, the ruler of the synagogue who had been casting condemnation probably most of his life toward people like this, all of a sudden had to watch while Jesus turned his attention and addressed this woman and called her daughter. So you can imagine what was going on in his mind. Come on, Jesus. I'm the guy with the money here. I'm the guy with the influence here. Let's go home and heal my daughter. So you see a lot of waiting in this story. And Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, addresses a whole chapter to that, the waiting. And he does so brilliantly. And I, I'm not going to take a lot of time talking about that today because what I saw as I was studying this was two things. I saw, on one hand, waiting, and then on the other hand, I saw persistence and pressing in. And so I want to just talk about those two things, contending, pressing in, persistence, and waiting, this tension that we all deal with in our lives. And like you said, sometimes it's a year and we're about ready to give up. For this lady, it had been 12 years. How do we balance all that out, the patience, the waiting, and then being persistent and pressing in when the time is right? And so I'm going to talk about it in three frames today, three frames of reference. The first is on the field, on the football field, since it's football season. Um, I'm a Chiefs fan. I'm a converted Chiefs fan. I married someone from Kansas City, so I had to root for the Chiefs. And uh, when the Chiefs play the Broncos, I have a real serious problem in my house Especially, mostly because the Broncos always lose. But anyway, uh, it's football season, so we're going to talk about persistence and patience on the field. Then we're going to talk about patience and persistence on the farm, and then patience and persistence in the battle that we're all in. So if you'll just hang with me this morning, we're going to try to cover these three areas. First of all, on the field, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we read these words. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air, but I punish my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I read that scripture because it gives us a picture of an athletic event and the person who has gone all in uh, for the fight or for the game. And as I think about uh, in Hebrews, there's another reference to it in Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, it says to run the race, uh, to throw off every weight that so easily besets us and run the race with patience that is set before us. By the word, that word patience is translated endurance. It's not just sitting around twiddling your thumbs. It means that you are persevering and, and enduring. Uh, we run the race with patience, throwing off for every weight. So if we could picture an athlete today, and since we're in football season, one of my favorite running backs through the years has been Barry Sanders. Um, most of you probably never heard that name. <laughs> but he was this awesome running back back in the 1980s and 90s for the Detroit Lions. They could never win a Super Bowl, but boy, he was fun to watch run. And uh, another one that I love to watch more currently is Le'Veon Bell, who was with the Steelers and now with the Tampa Bay Bucks. But there's something that these two guys had in common. They didn't just bust through the hole and make a path. They both learned how to wait patiently until the hole opened up. And then, as the late John Madden would say, boom, <laughs> they were gone. And to watch them run, in fact, I'd like to, I couldn't show videos because of copyright, NFL owns everything. But if you want to go home and watch some YouTube videos of Le'Veon Bell and watch his patience, it's incredible. It's not that he's not doing anything. He's not just sitting there back there waiting for things to happen, but he's waiting for just the right moment to push through the line, waiting for his blockers to open the holes. And when it's there, he goes. Waiting, letting the game come to him, you might say. Barry Sanders, I loved watching him. He could turn a complete busted play into a touchdown. And uh, it was because he watched for the openings and he patiently waited for the right time to attack. So what I want to talk today about is this whole idea of patience and perseverance and persistence that we learn how to wait on the Lord. But when the Lord says move, we move and we bust through in contending for what God has for us. I don't wanna be one of those. This, don't take this personally, especially my wife. I don't wanna be like um, Patrick Mahomes at the end of the game last week, where he was running aimlessly <laughs> in the backfield and nothing happened. That was a heartbreaker. You see, there comes a time when we watch and we wait, and then the Lord says, go, and we go. Forgive me, Lord, for making fun of Patrick Mahomes. Okay. <laughs> what about on the farm? I've got to get this picture back up here again. Did any of you come up with any captions for this picture? At work. At work. <laughs> yes, definitely. Job well done. Job well done. Looks like the field's done, doesn't it? Good. Thanks, Mike. Anyone else? 
The reapers. <laughs> I'll pass these along, by the way. <laughs> a season for everything. Time to plant, a time to harvest. Time to have coffee time. <laughs> yes, that's another good uh, coffee time. Any others? A time to rest. Good. We've been talking about that a lot at Sabbath. Good. Well, knowing the story a little bit, this is what we captioned this picture. It's waiting for the beans to dry. <laughs> now, I have to give you a little bit of a, of a farming 101 for this. For those of you who don't know about uh, harvesting soybeans, they do have another field right next door to go. And if you know these guys, these fine art boys, when it's time to go, they go. I mean, they don't sit around waiting on anything. They move. But on this particular day, they were decided they needed to wait for a little bit. And here's why. With corn, you can harvest in almost any conditions, unless it's outright raining or snowing. But with beans, soybeans, they go through this daily routine of picking up moisture at night with the, with the night air and with the dew. And you have to wait in the morning until there's enough sunshine to dry that dew off. Otherwise, what happens if you go in early, uh, you'll get a wad of the soybean into your combine and it'll slug it so solid, you'll be the rest of the day cleaning it out. I mean, you, I've been there, done that, okay? Just take my word for it. You'll skin your knuckles in ways and say words you never said before. These guys, they went to the field at about 11 o'clock this day, and they took a look at the beans, and they said, they're still too tough. We can't start yet. So they've got 600 horsepower sitting there ready, waiting to go, and they said, we are not going to chance it. We're not going to move in early. Otherwise, we'll be frustrated and we'll be fixing the parts all day long. We're going to wait for another hour. We'll tell some jokes. We'll drink some coffee. We'll have some lunch. We'll do this or that or the other, or just plain rest until the time is right. Until the time is right. Now, if they did this all day long, I'd have an issue. <laughs> but they knew the timeliness of what they had to do. They knew the importance of waiting for the right time and when the time was right to persevere and to persist. James 5, verse 7 says it this way. Oops, lost it. James 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Patience and persistence. Now, let's go to the next slide, if we could. Patience and persistence in the battle. Before we go to our text in Acts chapter, chapter 1, I want to talk about two battles in the Old Testament first, real briefly. One was the battle of Joshua at Jericho, and one was the battle of Gideon against the... Uh, uh, well, who was it? Who were they fighting against? I lost it. Midianites, thank you, thank you. I lost it against the Midianites. How much patience do you think it took for, for uh, uh, Joshua and all those two million Israelites to march around the city of Jericho quietly for six days without making a sound? One time each day. Now, if it was me, I would have probably said, let's go in and take this place. But God had a plan. 
And if we get ahead of God's plan, it usually means trouble. It always means trouble. But Joshua told them, he says, I want you to march around the city six days without making a sound. And I don't know why God, there's a lot of questions I'm going to ask when I get to heaven that mean absolutely nothing. But one of them I'm going to ask is, what was going through uh, the Jericho people's minds when they saw this two million people marching around? I think God was messing with them. That's what I think he was doing. They had heard all the stories. They had heard about this mighty army that uh, the whole earth melted like wax in the, Lord, in the presence of the Lord. They'd heard the stories about the Red Sea. And here these two million people are marching around their city, not making a single sound. I think it would be like having a bad dream and not being able to wake up. I think they were probably trembling in their boots, wondering what is this God up to? Some of them were probably cracking jokes. Some of them were, it was, it was probably coffee shop conversation, but I bet you down deep, they were all trembling for fear. And on the seventh day, they marched around seven times and then blew the trumpet and made a loud shout. And we know the rest of the story. God had timing, perfect timing. To get ahead was bad news. To lag behind was bad news. Patience in the battle The other story is the story about Gideon and the Midianites. Uh, There were 32,000 people that showed up to fight. The size of the army, we don't know. It was at least 120,000 because it said that's how many casualties there were at the end of the battle. So 32,000 to 120,000. Here's the deal. If it was me and I got the 32,000 ready to go, I'd say, by faith, We're going to go in here and conquer these Midianites. And I'd have gotten in the middle of it and realized I was outnumbered four to one. (laughs) So what God God did was he thinned them down. He says, all right, all of you who are afraid, go home. And I think Gideon probably thought, well, maybe maybe 10% will go home. We're we're soldiers after all. Well, out of the 32,000, 22,000 went home. And there were only 10,000 left. Then the Lord said to Gideon, you still got too many. He said, took them down to the brook. And the ones that lapped water out of their hands, he said, those are the ones I want you to take to battle. And there were 300 against several hundred thousand. He said, I want you to know when this happens that the battle belongs to me and not to you. I just want you to know today that some of you are facing some pretty tough odds. If God's on your side, you're going to be all right. You are going to be all right. But be patient for the right time. Because here's what happened. Uh, God told Gideon to go down into the camp that night to listen to what was going on. And so they went down to the camp and, and they listened to these two guys and they said, I had a terrible dream. I, I dreamed that uh, that a big, uh, uh, big something rolled out of the mountain and just consumed all of us. And, and I, it, it has to mean that, that the Lord is fighting for this army of Gideon. And so these people were scared out of their wits. And the next day, or later that night, uh, they were supposed to break their pitchers and sound a trumpet and holler out the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That was their battle strategy. And because God had already put the fear in these people, they turned on each other. And before the, the day was over, there were 120,000 Midianites who had killed each other in the battle because they were fearful of the 300 that God 
had prepared. You see, if they'd have gone ahead of God, it would have been disaster. If they'd have waited till after the time, it would have been disaster. But at the right time, if we have patience and persistence and press in in the battle, we can have victory. Church, we can have victory. I don't know if we talk about that enough. Sometimes we, I'm going to go to Madeline here, quit preaching and go on to Madeline. This, this book says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This book tells us that he always causes us to triumph through Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean you're going to fill your garage with Cadillacs or boats or anything else. But it does mean that we can walk confidently in victory as children of the Most High God. We are not just trying to get by until we make it to heaven. We are people on the march with the word of God as our weapon, the sword of the spirit. We have, uh, we have all of the, the uh, armor of God that we can put on every day before we get out of bed. There is no reason for us to live in defeat. God has prescribed victory for us if we are patient and persistent in the battle. And this leads me to what I want to close with today with our scripture for patience and persistence in the battle in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus had just commissioned the church to make disciples of all nations, 12 people. Go out and make disciples of all nations. This is what he said to them. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has put in his authority, but you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is probably the most important message for us today as the church when it comes to patience and waiting and persistence. Jesus told them, he said, I don't want you to go out into battle until you've gone to the upper room and waited for the promise of the Father. Folks, we're living in turbulent times. We're living in times when the church, if the world were telling the story, is on its way out. They don't know the end of the story. If we as a church will rise up and get to our upper room and wait for the promise of the Father, I believe that we can change the world that we live in for the kingdom of God. I'm, I don't know how much to talk about this, but there's all sorts of things that we can get ourselves involved in to try to change our world. And I'm not, I'm not trying to pick any fights here today, but I've had stuff come across my desk in the last week that talked about pornographic material in the libraries, about things they're teaching in schools, about political activism here or there or everywhere. And believe me, 
I, I can get politically motivated with the best of you. Believe me, my wife can tell you. <laughs> but is that the calling that God has placed on us? When the time is right, yes, but we better go to the upper room first and see what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church today. Before we charge into a school board meeting, maybe we need to go to the upper room first. Before we get on our soapbox or grab a microphone or do any other thing, can we go to the upper room first and wait for the promise of the Father to be endued with power on high? This is what Kevin would do right here, okay? <laughs> I'm pretty well convinced that if we walk around with the spirit of the living God inside of us, it's not going to matter a whole lot what's in the school library. If, where we, if our shadow is falling across people and they are being healed, that's going to trump our political activism. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We have a responsibility as citizens to be wise with, and steward that citizenship well. But our answer for the world is in here and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Word and spirit, word and spirit, word and spirit. Let's not get lost in this. Let's not charge ahead <laughs> to charge into battle. Let's go to the upper room first. And I'll share real quickly this morning what my challenge for you is this week. My challenge is for each of us to find our upper room, wherever that is. Whether it's a prayer closet, for me, it's the lighthouse, the top floor of the lighthouse up there by the globe. That's my upper room. This morning, I went up there early and I was watching. There was, when I first went up there, there was no color whatsoever. And, and as I waited, the color started forming in the eastern sky and I knew... <laughs> Once again, the faithfulness of God as I watched the sun rise. And behind me was this globe, and to me that represented this lost world where we live with all kinds of brokenness everywhere. So I'm standing in the lighthouse with the sun rising, the faithfulness of God ahead of me, and behind me this world that's fallen apart and is lost and broken and hurting. And I'm standing in between, and I hear this word of God come to me and says, that's why I gave you the Holy Spirit. That's why I'm giving you the Holy Spirit so that my faithfulness can change this world for eternity. And I said the same thing that you probably say, Lord, what can I do? What can one man do? Can I share you one more quick story before we wrap it up today? I just read this this week uh, from some friends of mine who... Um, they were involved with a church that I, that I grew up in, the Assembly of God Church, and there was a student at North Central Bible College years ago, and she's the one that relayed the story in Minneapolis. In 1921, and I probably won't get all these details right, I'm trying to do it from one quick read-through, but in 1921, there was a, a young couple in a Scandinavian country who felt called to missions. Their names were David and um, Sven, good Norwegian name. David and Sven, uh, now the, I, it's escaped me, I'm sorry. This getting old is for the birds. 
David and Zven, we'll just call them that, for Flood. Their last name was Flood. And they were called to be missionaries in the Belgian Congo. They went down there in 1921. The chief of the city where they were at hated them, uh, pronounced all sorts of curses against them, would not allow them to do anything in the town. But the one thing that he did allow was for his son to go to their home every week to bring eggs and milk to this family. And Zven was just a little bit of a, she was four feet eight, weighed about 110 pounds soaking wet. And she said, we were not getting anywhere in ministering to this, to this culture. But the Lord spoke to me, if I could win that one young boy to Jesus, if I could just win that one young boy to Jesus. So she started teaching this boy every time he came with milk and eggs about Jesus. And it wasn't very long and he gave his heart to the Lord and became a, a believer in Jesus. About that time, uh, Sven got pregnant again and she gave birth to a daughter named Aggie. And in the pregnancy, she caught malaria and 17 later, days later, she died, the mother, Sven. At that, the missionary David was angry at God. He left the mission field, went back home, said, I'll never serve God again a day in my life. Aggie was given to another missionary couple who was from the United States who went and moved back to the United States. She grew up, married a, a guy and went to school at North Central Bible College, Jen, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And she was at a meeting there one time and she saw this, uh, saw this uh, conference that was going on in Zaire, which used to be the Belgian Congo. And she heard about this mighty revival going on in the Belgian Congo. And, and so she said, I had to find out, and I, this conference had a, a speaker who was the general superintendent of 110,000 believers in Zaire. So she said, I got to go to this. I got to go to this. And she went to, to this conference, and the speaker was the general superintendent from Zaire. And she went up to him afterwards. She said, Do you happen, did you ever happen to know a David and Zvia flood? And he said, I'm the boy <laughs> that your mama led to Jesus. He said, there is a mighty revival, hundreds of thousands of believers, and your mama has a white cross in her grave in the Belgian Congo, and she is the most famous lady in our region. One person. One person. When we're willing to wait for the promise of the Father, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So today is... Josiah and the team comes back. They're going to sing another song about waiting. And along with my challenge to you to find your upper room, I want you just to take this moment, this time that they sing a couple of songs for us just to wait in the Lord's presence. This preacher went a little longer probably than he should have, but I hope that you got the message today that we need to be in the Lord's time clock. It's usually not the same as ours. But when we can wait until we're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's no telling what God can do through us.